Welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I am David Kern, and I am joined by Heidi White, who is actually here right now, and Tim McIntosh, who is getting a cup of coffee. And nope, he's back. Tim's I'm back. No, I'm Tim, here. Heidi, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks, David. Tim, you did not have to go far to get that coffee. No. It's in a tiny house. Yeah, oh. right. Right. <laughs> Uh, well, we are here to discuss um, four books from the Odyssey, books 13, 14, 15, and 16. After this, we will get back into the two books a week cycle and, and do that through the end of the Odyssey. Uh, don't forget about all the other great content we have on the Close Reads Podcast Network. We have The Daily Poem is back. In fact, we just had the one-year anniversary of that. So that was pretty exciting. Thanks to everyone who's been listening. We have a new batch of episodes of Libromania coming soon. Uh, that will be back in September. And um, don't forget about the place, the thing. Tim and our uh, friend Sarah Jane Bentley have been going through Othello. I joined them for uh, Act One, and then they did Act Two, and they did so good without me that I might just not need to be there anymore. It seems pointless. It's like I've just dragged a group down. Clearly, that's not know? that's like yeah. No, I'm sure that's like hundred percent untrue. No, I, yeah. I was I was listening to it and I listening to it and I thought. Well, I have forked myself out of a job now, so this is exactly what you're <laughs> supposed to do, right? Um, find people who can replace you. Um, but speaking of which, that's kind of what the Odyssey is about today. Um, we are here to discuss, as I said, 13 through 16. Just quickly, I'm going to summarize what each of those books are because when we do four books, things get a little bit um, lost, I think. In book 13... Odysseus leaves the Phaeacians, they drop him off on their island, and then they get destroyed by Poseidon, who is petulant. In book 14... Um, Odysseus meets up with Eumaeus, who um, Tim told me something very interesting about before we started. And, I, and I'm going to have to ask him to say that on the air. I didn't warn him about that, but I think we need to do that. And then uh, we hear a lot about Eumaeus's, um how he made it to Ithaca originally. And then in book 14, I mean, sorry, rather book 15, Telemachus makes it back to the island despite the best efforts of the suitors to keep that from happening. And then in book 16, the uh, Odysseus and the long, well, the long lost Odysseus and his son reconnect and um, cry on each other's shoulders and then begin to hatch plans to destroy the suitors. So that's pretty much what happens in these books. Um, Tim, well, Heidi, before you were here, Tim was telling me something very interesting. He told me that uh, Eumaeus might be his favorite character in the whole book of the odyssey not just like these four books but in the entirety of the odyssey and i did clarify that um and and i so i want to ask i want to talk about you mace a little bit i I wanted to do that anyway but this seems like a great entryway into that conversation because when someone says that in all of the odyssey a book that includes characters like penelope and odysseus and athena and telemachus he says that you is perhaps his favorite character so tim tell us why I just love the idea of this faithful old man who continues to go about his business, who is loyal to Odysseus and Penelope and to Telemachus, and despite being really poor, despite having very little standing, um, you know, he's not an accomplished person. He embodies 
the hospitality that is the kind of like this under theme that ties this whole book mm. together. We talked about mm. how the Cyclops is renowned for his inhospitality, both in his treatment of Odysseus and Odysseus's men, but also even in his living arrangements. You know, he like lives alone. He mm. has no, he makes no laws with other men. He doesn't cooperate with other Cyclops. Um, and, and, the the swineherd does the opposite. He does everything right, and as soon as Odysseus, disguised as a beggar, kind of hobbles toward his hut, he immediately treats him with honor and respect, not knowing that he's Odysseus. And I just find that I find that so compelling. Mm. Yeah, I just find that so compelling, and I I, I think in some ways. I think that the analogy that we talked about a little bit last week between the return of Christ, the bridegroom to his people kind of mirrored by the return of Odysseus to his people. I think, you know, and the task of his people is to remain faithful and to go about their work. And I think Eumaeus just, gets it he does it mm. Mm. it's interesting that you talk about how he kind of incarnates the theme of hospitality and then you brought up the cyclops being sort of the opposite of that because in book 13 we get the bit where the phaeacians take him take odysseus to the island and then as i said in my brief summary poseidon gets kind of petulant and then we get that bit where it says that the uh, alcinous says my father long ago said that Poseidon hates us for our habit of helping travelers get home again. And I was, and Poseidon is polyphemous, the Cyclops' father. And so Poseidon himself right. seems to be sort of anti, almost like anti-Xenia, <laughs> like anti-hospitality, you know, in a sense, in a mm-hmm. way that, um, um, that is, that is profound in, not thematically, although thematically as well, but in the sense that it drives action. Poseidon is so against helping other people and the concept of hospitality. He's so sort of tribal that it drives so much of the action of the book and of Odysseus's journey. And that, so I love that you mentioned that the Cyclops is kind of in opposition to Eumaeus's deeply, um, deep commitment to that hospitality. Uh, that's, That's really interesting. David, you used the word antizenia, which I, I don't recall that we actually referred to the Greek word yet on the podcast. You just had that in your back pocket, apparently, this whole time. <laughs> well, I, honestly, I don't know. Is the Greek word for, is the Greek word zenia, is it um, stranger? Does it mean stranger? Does it mean visitor? Like aliens, hospitality, the guest host relationship. So you can have Xenia as a guest and Xenia as a host. It's Xenos, which is that word that you're referring to for stranger, sometimes translated stranger, sometimes guest, sometimes host, sometimes friend, depending on the context. But it is that profound hospitality that characterized Greek culture uh, that there's these series of expectations that are set for guests and for hosts. 
And it's a huge deal in the Odyssey. Yeah, I mean, we see yeah, it. In David, f- you breathed in as if you were about to speak. <laughs> well, there was kind of like a lag that, you know, the internet just kind of tricks us sometimes. Um, the, yes. uh, there's the bit in 14, or I think, no, 15, where Telemachus is going home and he realizes it's time to go and he's like ready to just rush off. And his buddy, you know, help, they, he, they say, he says, no, we have to talk to Menelaus. We, we have a duty as a, as a guest and he has a duty as a host. And so we have to play our part in this relationship. We can't just run off even though it's beneficial for us. Um, and, and so you see that at play there. And then you also see it. Even the swine herd, Eumaeus, is like, he, there's a code, you know, even for the lowest yes. people on the totem pole, so to speak, there's a yeah. code that's, that, that there are expectations that, that you, that you, you treat people a certain way. But the fact that the God that Poseidon himself doesn't value that code is the thing that, that ends up wreaking havoc. It causes chaos when the gods don't follow the code, you know, everything falls apart. Right. Right. That's true. You know, it's interesting in teaching the Iliad in my high school class I'm teaching, I just stumbled upon this fascinating bit of history that I just shared with my class and I'm going to share with you about the myth of Poseidon. So in the Minoan civilization, which was developed on the island of Crete, there was a nearby island called Theros or Theris uh, that you could see from the shores of Crete where the Minoans lived. And that island was destroyed by a volcano. It wasn't really inhabited, but it was destroyed by a volcano, which would have been preceded by a series of earthquakes. Uh, and this happened, I I think around 800 BC. I think I'm getting that right. But somewhere around the time of what we call the Greek Dark Ages, uh, which were, of course, not truly dark. We just can't, we can't see into them. So we're the ones who are dark. (laughs) But their society was rich and deep and strong and uh, full of all of these things that we see in the Odyssey, the the codes of hospitality and this like very rich uh, civilization. So on the, on the Minoan coast, they would have seen this island be destroyed. They would have seen a, felt and experienced a series of earthquakes and then seen the erupting of the volcano that then destroyed the island. And to this day, the island is just a ring uh, and, and the, the bulk of the island has been destroyed by this volcano. And uh, Crete still has volcanic ash in the soil from the erupting of this volcano. So they know what happened and they could place it around the time of Homer. So this idea of Poseidon Earthshaker, the inhospitable god, uh, the, the one who is violent and destructive and has the most uh, antagonism toward the human race would have had an actual historical kind of physical connection to the land of Greece with its many islands and its violent disruptions in the natural order with earthquakes and volcanoes and things like that. So it actually has some kind of sense to it that the God of the sea would be angry and vengeful and hard to appease. No matter how many sacrifices you offer to him, that island is still going to be destroyed by the volcano. And they would have known that and seen it play out. So there is some historical evidence that this 
idea of Poseidon is rooted in the actual Greek landscape. Isn't that fascinating? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. The mythology. Um, Go ahead, Tim. Well, I, I was just gonna, I was just gonna piggyback on that a, a, a little bit. For me, I'm, I'm going to take a slightly different direction. Um, whenever I think about the Odyssey, and especially when I'm teaching the Odyssey, oftentimes I'm teaching it to, to students who are more familiar, maybe with like a biblical timeline. You know, they they were raised in Christian homes, and maybe they have some grasp of the old testament timeline and i was just going to try to kind of like plot out a little bit when these events are happening what sort of events are happening at the same time as the trojan war at the same time as Hmm. homer's life Hmm. in the old testament and i want to first preface it by saying the dates are kind of murky you know we've done the best we could with inscriptions from you know ancient greece and ancient palestine but the rough idea is um if the trojan war happens sometime between 1400 bc and 1100 bc that's right around the time that the judges are ruling israel and it's the beginning of the period of the kings so saul and david and then there's this kind of middle part in Greek history called the Dorian Age. In the Dorian Age, it's it's not terribly long, maybe 300 years, and it's the time that's best known for the development of the polis, which is going to become crucial during the time of classical Athens later. So Dorian Age for about 300 years, maybe 1100 to 800, and then comes the time of Homer. So Homer is living... Again, we're kind of smudgy on the dates. 800 to 500 is roughly the window that we think he lived in. And that's roughly the time of um, the kings from the Old Testament. So that might help you. And then to, kind of to skip forward, because I'm so interested, we're also interested in kind of the classical Greek explosion. Socrates and Euclid and Pythagoras. That begins around... 500, and that's right around the time that the Old Testament begins to go silent. So people who know their Bible pretty well know that between the close of the Old Testament and the open of the book of Matthew, the foretelling of the coming of Christ, there's about 400 years that there's just, there's nothing. The Catholic scriptures have um, books that are inserted, but if you are a Protestant like I am, I, I said that the wrong way. Not that they were inserted. They have held those books from the beginning. But there was a dispute between Protestants and Catholics about um, books that Protestants say lie in the intertestamental period. And without getting into a whole dispute about that, Protestants... They, they <laughs> That's closed, another podcast. Yeah. Protestants closed the Old <laughs> Testament and then opened the New Testament into about a 400-year gap of quiet... And that's roughly around the time that classical Athens, that Athens that we spend so much time studying in classical literature, Socrates, hmm. Plato, etc., that happens roughly during that that quiet period between the testaments. Hmm. That's interesting. So it fills in a gap between that and the coming of Christ. Yeah, it kind of does. 
And then, sorry, can I just continue this history lesson? I just think this stuff is so <laughs> What happens is we're reading about Greek culture, right? And in Greek culture, the kind of miracle of Greek culture happens kind of in the shadow of Homer and democracy and science and what we think of as kind of modern history, all of that begins to explode during the classical period. And we still have, we still kind of like operate by a lot of the principles and a lot of the kind of investigations and discoveries that happened during that classical period. The big question is, well, how did we get it? You know, here we are 2,500 years later, how did it come to us? And the main vein that kind of helped transport Greek ideals around the world was our guy, Alexander the Great. He, in conquering the world, spreads Greek ideals from Macedonia and from Athens throughout all of the world. And the fun thing about this is what people think is that the student, excuse me, Socrates taught Plato, Plato taught Aristotle, and Aristotle, it's believed in some corners, Aristotle taught Alexander the Great. So Alexander the Great would have been kind of received his education directly from one of the three great Greek philosophers. And so when he traveled around the world conquering, he allowed the conquered nations and cities to basically rule themselves, but he did institute some sort of like kind of Greek ideals for their rule and about their forms of education that were directly from classical Athens, which is living kind of in the shadow of Homer. So there you can kind of tie together the Odyssey, the book that we're reading. You can kind of see how its passage kind of made its way even down to us. Yeah, into the into into even you know into even roman culture to the to the point that it influences virgil to write to write the great roman epic so is part of what's going on there is that's being passed down do you think part of that is is sort of a preservation of things like this code that we were talking about this sort of code of hospitality is that the sort of thing that it's not just the sort of oral storytelling the tales themselves um it's maybe not even just the sort of philosophy of Aristotle and so forth, but there's this sort of cultural code uh, to, to borrow a word that's probably the wrong word, to, to use a word that's the wrong word, but that we've been using. Is that what's getting preserved and passed on as that culture is spreading out? And thus, like, it sort of, they're learning, you know, that code being what sort of embodies the tales that they're telling such that they become so meaningful? Yeah, I, I mean, Heidi, please speak up about this. I, I have a feeling you know more about it than I do. But, but there's this sense, like even in Aristotle, the teacher of Alexander the Great, he, we kind of divide his ethics into, excuse me, we divide his philosophy into kind of like practical matters and in speculative matters. So um, he, lo- he wrote a book called Metaphysics and it's highly speculative and it's um, extremely useful, even though it's highly speculative. But then his practical ethics, like the Nicomachean ethics, boy, it, for me, I can see sort of like the fingerprints of that hospitality code kind of everywhere. And does he directly say, does Aristotle say directly, 
I'm taking the hospitality code from my legacy, from the legacy of the Homeric ethic and, you know, the pre-classical um, vision of treating the stranger with dignity and honor. No, he doesn't really do that kind of a history. On occasion, he does that. Um, but it's it seems to me like he is so... Even though Aristotle was not originally a Greek, he's so imbued in the ways and habits of Greek culture that, yeah, I can see the kind of vision of hospitality sort of flowing through this river of classical Athens and making its way across across the world. Right. Well, and Homer's Greece was, as we know, hundreds of years before uh, classical Athens and the golden age of Greece. And so I think that what Tim is saying is exactly right. There's an assumption of these codes. It's not necessarily this drive to preserve them. They're just assumed to be undergirding uh, the morality of the culture. Um, and I, I think I'll come at it in even a, a very literary way with the Iliad and the Odyssey. The Iliad is very concerned with the warrior code, right? It explores it from multiple angles. Uh, what does it mean to show mercy to an enemy? Uh, when is that appropriate and when is it not? When When is anger, uh, when does that serve the code and when does it not? When does the search for glory become too great? Uh, what does it mean to be a warrior who's fully integrated into a society as Hector is versus one who's inherently by nature and by fate outside of the society like Achilles? And, and so it explores the, the Homeric um, Greek warrior code from multiple angles. And the Odyssey does that with this code of hospitality, which is very, very pragmatic as well as idealistic because there was no such thing as a hotel or an inn or, and, but people traveled all the time. And so there had to be these kind of laws that guard and protect. I won't say that again, Logan. There had to be these laws, this code of honor and of morality and of pragmatic survival that guarded the traveler within a civilized society. Hmm. And that's what this code is. And that's what a true enduring code, that's why they last from one generation to another is because they are both pragmatic and serviceable and practical and also moral and idealistic. And when those things become united, that's when they kind of undergird a society for an enduring amount of time from generation to generation to generation. And that's why when they are lost, a society becomes unmoored, doesn't know what to do. And that's the position we're in, right? Which is, I think, why we're so drawn to these societies with these codes, uh, including something like, you know, we've talked about this, the three of us talked about this, with Jane Austen, with Remains of the Day, with books that, uh, with books and TV shows um, that explore what it means to live in a hierarchical coded society that has that, because we don't, we don't, and there's a little bit of this lost feeling. But we need to understand that in these ancient times, they did have that, and mm. so their literature is going to explore that, what it means, what it means to step outside of it, what it means to live within it. And I think that those two codes, the code of hospitality and the code of the, uh, of the warrior, those are the two big ones that are explored in these two pieces of literature and these epics. 
Mm. Well, okay. Let's let's turn a little bit closer back to the book now. Just um, right, because I want to I want to go back to Eumaeus because there was something I was wondering what you guys think. In book fourteen, I'm glad Tim brought up Eumaeus. In book fourteen, we have this long sort of you could call it a rabbit trail, <laughs> um, where Eumaeus we get Eumaeus basically telling his whole story of what how he got there, um, and. I was thinking, man, this is long. It's like, like got to be a couple hundred lines. Um, it it felt like it anyway. And I was wondering why you think that is there. I guess because on a first read through, Eumaeus seems kind of like that secondary character, but he's getting just as much of, you know, it's he, he, the story he tells has just as much detail as some of those times we've heard Odysseus telling his tale. I mean, maybe not as many books as you know that when he's telling it to Alcinous and the Phaeacians, when Odysseus is, but he gets, you know, a couple pages of, of lengthy, of, of time to tell his lengthy story and how he got there and all that. And yet he's sort of this sort of secondary character, maybe even tertiary character. <laughs> why, why the, why the emphasis, why that rabbit trail that is there? You think Tim, as the uh, president of the Emmaus fan club, what do you think about well, this? <laughs> you know what I was going to try to do is I was going to try to jump in and say, yeah, what do you think, Heidi? Because I promise you, as much as I love Eumaeus, I had the exact same question, David, and my answer is flimsy at best. <laughs> well, good. Then let's hear it. And then Heidi can respond to it and, and take it down. Oh, this is like so me. flimsy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm really... I was telling a friend of mine that one of the things that I love about close reads is that I can kind of like stumble forward and speculate and not know what in the world I'm talking about sometimes. And you guys are gracious enough to kind of like pat me on the back and say, that's really interesting, Tim. This is one of those occasions. <laughs> um, the best I can do is that I think that Homer thinks that you may like, I think you may is awesome. I think he thinks that he's great. And I also think that he recognizes that he is um, not an esteemed character in the Ithacan world, in the Homeric world that he's writing about. And perhaps like Ruth, so I'm going to hearken back to the Old Testament, Ruth is not an esteemed character among, in Palestine. She's a, she's a Moabitess, so she's an alien. Um, she is, she lost her husband. She has very little wealth, very little standing. And guess what? Ruth gets her own book in the Old Testament. Like, you know what I mean? I think it's a way of, it was, it was a way that the Old Testament esteems Ruth despite not having standing. And by contrast, in the Old Testament, Omri is this like, really wealthy, super powerful king who lives around the same time. He's the ruler of Israel around the same time that Ruth is alive. And he gets like two sentences and the sentences are like, yeah, he wasn't a good king. And that's all he gets. So <laughs> I'm kind of pasting on kind of a little bit of an Old Testament idea about Ruth, this character of no esteem and Eumaeus, this character of no esteem, hmm. but both of them are 
Like they're living it, they're doing it the right way. They are characters of virtue. They're embodying these ideals that the authors want to hold up such that Homer gives Eumaeus his own kind of like little mini book. He gets to tell his own history. He's like full history. <laughs> that's, so that's the best that I can do. But believe me, I asked myself this question when I was listening. I was like, man, Homer is a lot of time, buddy. It's a lot of time you're given to the swine herd. Heidi. Help me, Heidi. <laughs> I think, I think that Tim, I think you're really onto something. I think that um, your connection to the Old Testament is completely valid. Although Homer wouldn't have read the Old Testament, they would have, I mean, that particular story, they're, they're not connected historically or literarily, but they are connected culturally. You know, that idea of giving someone of low birth a chance to tell their story, I think is really lovely um, and heart. It touches your heart in this book. Um, Part of it is pragmatic. The code of hospitality demands that you greet a stranger, bring them into your home, you share a meal together. It has to be in this order. You, if you're a, if you're a stranger, if you're a Zenos who's looking for a place to stay, you would go to the home of somebody who is about the same class or rank as you were. If you're a poor man, you go to a poor man's home. If you are a wealthy, highborn man, you go to the palace or to 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 the house of a, a lord or somebody like that, um, a highborn person. And you would be greeted at the door by the stranger there who would invite you in, make sure that you have the opportunity to wash, and then you share a meal together. And after you share a meal, then you say, tell me who you are, tell me your name, and tell me your story. And then you trade stories. And then at the end of the storytelling, then you would give each other gifts and then come up with a plan for the future of the stranger or the Xenos in your home. Um, and probably the best translation of that that embodies that is is in Emily Wilson when she she calls, uh, she uses the phrase guest friend when mm-hmm. appropriate. Yeah. So it's guest first, but you are also a friend. Um, and... And so after the poor hospitality um, that Odysseus has experienced on his journeys, but then he's brought into the home um, uh, of the Phaeacians and treated with this perfect hospitality as the king that he is. But So that's important transition, right? That has to be explored somewhere as Odysseus getting the hospitality of a king. So that's, that happens in the Phaeacians. But then when he lands here, he's in disguise. Uh, but I think that this little, this, this little interlude here, um, of, of the storytelling from each other gives us a couple of things craft wise one and culturally one is it says that Odysseus is going to experience hospitality from the lowest, uh, class in his society. And that speaks well of him. Especially since Eumaeus in his speeches speaks so highly of Odysseus. Yes, because it is Odysseus's leadership mm. that has inspired the loyalty in Eumaeus, who is now being, in a sense, rewarded by being able to offer hospitality to his king, even though he doesn't know it's him. Mm. So there's this kind of embedding of honor on multiple levels that happens in this scene. 
And we get to know Eumaeus. We have an emotional connection with him. He's been a slave. He's been kidnapped. But Odysseus has been kind to him and lifted him up and given him the opportunity to care for his herds. And, and Eumaeus has remained loyal to him uh, in spite of the fact that the kingdom is in danger from the suitor. So I think craft-wise, that serves a lot of purposes in, in foreshadowing the victory that Odysseus is going to experience with this faithful kind of like deputy companion by his side. Uh, and the story is important to the Xenia. It has, we have to hear the story from both sides. And then we hear Odysseus's story, which is completely made up, a lie from start <laughs> to finish. And mm-hmm. that, again, speaks to the craftiness uh, and strategic mind of Odysseus, that even on the spot, he can make up a story of this level of detail uh, in response to this other story. Yeah, well, I mean, anybody can make up a story if they're just sitting around a fire and rambling for a few hours. You just keep adding details. Without contradicting, yeah, well, true, without contradicting itself, though. Like, his know, story is so... Ma- I know you are. But the story is like so masterful. And But Zania demands that we hear Eumaeus's as well. well. I love that part where Eumaeus is telling Odysseus how Odysseus... Was where he's still alive in Ithaca would have taken care of him. He basically like he sounded like Odysseus was his kind of like pension and retirement plan. Odysseus would have made sure that I got married. Um, and and like what a picture of the relationship between like the king and the slave. I mean, like the impact that a good king like Odysseus would have on his environments is hard to underestimate. I mean, everything, if he is a a person of integrity, everything goes well within his community. And if you have the suitors who have no integrity, if they're in charge, look how everything sort of suffers. The swine herd, his pension plan, his retirement plan, his romantic life, all of those kind of remain fallow and, and impoverished. Hmm. That's really and good. Another, it's another picture of what the return of the king means to Ithaca. We've been hearing about it over and over. And now the king is actually back in Ithaca. He's in disguise. And we're starting to get a real glimpse of um, how things will be set right. This faithful swine herd, Eumaeus, right. is going to, he's going to get his just due. And we're seeing the, in very personal sort of individual ways, we're seeing the effects of him being gone, as you said. It's humanizing the effects of, of his absence. Yeah. Beyond just like the, the, the fight for Penelope and Telemachus, right? Like right. It takes it from beyond the castle, beyond the, the, the town or whatever, out to, out to the lowest people. It's, it affects everybody, not just, not just the succession. Right, yeah. right, right. The, the the question of succession impacts everybody that's that's on the island. Yeah, I love the bit where, to your point, Heidi, after Odysseus's story, it says, "You may says your tale of woe is very moving but pointless." Uh-huh. <laughs> it's like a little nod to the audience, knowing that he's making it all up. Yeah, um, yep. we should probably before we run out of time, we should probably talk about Telemachus, huh? Telemachus yes. and, and Odysseus meeting up. So, um. The book's been building to this, um, not just to Odysseus getting home and Telemachus getting home, but to 
them sort of connect, reconnecting, right? There's sort of three intersections that the book is building towards. Uh, the intersection of Telemachus and Odysseus, the intersection of Penelope and Odysseus, and the intersection of Odysseus and the suitors. And all three of those things sort of have to happen for the book to resolve itself. And so we get the first of those resolutions, I suppose, if you want to use that word, the first of those intersections yeah. in book 16, Telemachus and Odysseus finally meeting. And of course, Telemachus doesn't recognize him at first until, well, because Athena has enchanted Odysseus. Um, do you, when you come out of book 16, do you, do you get the sense that there is a sort of um, new act if of the book that's beginning. Like, do you feel like if you're thinking about it into like a three act play or something like that, does it, do, do you get the sense that at the end of book 16, we're into a new story, into a new type of story or a new phase of the story? Tim, as our resident playwright here, I'd love to hear what you think about that and the sort of structure of what Homer's, Homer's doing here. I, I definitely, for me, the beginning of the last act is the, is the meeting of, is the landing of Odysseus on the island. That's um, the beginning of the beginning of the last act. Yeah, that's like the that's act one, scene one is Odysseus on the sands of Ithaca. Um, but I mean, I act love one, scene one. You mean sorry, act, act three, scene okay. one. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, if we're thinking of it as a three act play, but I I think you're exactly right that it's almost like if you could break um, act three up into three major parts. It's something like Odysseus meets his son. Odysse and then the second major meeting is Odysseus meets Penelope. Or may maybe it's like something like um, Odysseus, Odysseus confronts the suitors. And then the kind of like climactic finale is Odysseus finally is with Penelope. Because I think... In some ways, even though I think you're exactly right, David, that it's not just a story of the reunion of a small family, but it's the story of Odysseus, the king, coming to set in order his palace, his neighborhood, his city, his island. Um, I do think that like the very heartbeat of that is his reunion with his wife. It's almost like like even we'll we'll talk about their very unique marriage bed, the actual construction of the marriage bed. I even think like that's like the very very nucleus of the whole story for me is the two of them like in their in the chamber where their bridal bed is, where their marriage bed is. That to me is like the real centerpiece of the story. But clearly, the reunion between father and son is a tremendous moment toward making things right. It strikes me that in some ways, maybe we're getting the first, perhaps least moving or, or maybe least important reunion, the kind of build up in importance we get, you know, he meets with Telemachus and then he has to meet with Penelope and then he has to destroy the suitors. And then ultimately that leads to the ultimate sort of reunion. So they have to sort of scale up to add up, to the total, you know, to the total, uh, make the, the total sense that everything is made right. All those things have to happen and it, ha it has to happen one at a time. It's, it's kind of masterful not to have them 
to have him sort of sneak onto the island and then go into the castle and encounter everyone at the same time. Like the stages of that, you know, on the surface, I mean, maybe it seems obvious, but it might not have been obvious when they were originally telling the story, right? You know, um, it, it might have been the most obvious thing might have been to have him kind of come in in a blaze of glory and, right. uh, you know, drop into the middle like a superhero, destroy the suitors. There's Penelope who sees him for the first time, realizes who he is, you know, faints because he's so brave. The boy jumps in and, you know, just all that could happen to one big sort of battle, but he, they slow play it in a way that makes it more meaningful. Heidi. And they, sorry to jump in the Heidi. They also slow play the reunion. I mean, Homer is so good at like setting you up for what you want and then not really delivering him, just like making you wait and wait and wait. So he reveals himself to Telemachus and you're like, finally, this is what our heart wants. We want Odysseus and Telemachus to be back together. And what happens? Telemachus is like, I don't believe you. <laughs> yeah, I don't why would I believe you. that? And we're like, we're delayed. We're delayed even more, you know? And he, he just like makes us really suffer for it until finally the tears and the embrace come. Well, and even beyond before that, we have this whole bit. We know Telemachus is coming, but we have to sit through you know, his conversation with Athena and then his conversation with Eumaeus. And then when Eumaeus comes back later, he gets turned back into the old man. So it's not, it's never like totally, that catharsis is never totally there. Heidi, yeah. I forgot what I was going to say, but it's ask you, but it's your turn to talk. Now. <laughs> <laughs> That's completely my fault. It's all right. No, fault. no, I need no prompts. I just have things to say. So, um, <laughs> yeah, this... You've been keeping I'll, a journal over there? Uh, I mean, maybe. <laughs> um, I love this part of the book. And so I'm I'm just going to speak as a human, not in any kind of literary scholarship or, you know, academic sense. I I really love the first half of the Odyssey. I think that's the adventure story that's that's the most famous part, but this part of the story the slow play to the restoration of this kingdom, this has like my heart like I can engage my mind with this book at any point, but this is to me, my experience with this book is the heart of it is, is this unfolding longing to, he's in the presence of his family and he is watching the danger and the threat play out. And David, to your point that you asked earlier, your question about is this does is there a transition at the end of book sixteen? Yes, because here now he has two helpers. He's no longer alone. Like this hmm. is so significant. We get one reunion at a time, as both of you have pointed out, and both and all of them have like this full description of of what the characters are thinking and feeling and what they're saying to each other and there's there's weeping there's this full experience of of human connection in every single one of these reunions to the extent of Odysseus's attachment to his servant which is going to be different than his attachment to his son which is going to be different from his attachment to his old dog who waited to see him and then died in his presence right this is such a deep emotional experience to read this and don't miss that you know that to the people who are very used to kind of the fast pace of the first half of the book sometimes this feels like oh it's so slow it's kind of boring nothing exciting is happening i think just just pay attention to the full richness and abundance of 
of Odysseus's return to the restoration of his land. Um, and, and it gives him the, uh, now that he has Eumaeus and Telemachus, now they can make plans, right? He has help and he's connected and becoming integrated then back into his own society where he should be the leader, but he has to remain in disguise as a beggar. And as we'll find out in future reading, is persecuted. Hmm. And so I just love this. And I have heard, and this came from Matt Bianco, so I'm going to give him full credit to Matt Matthew, um, is that he he said, he asked me, hey, what do you see that could be like the return of Christ? And this, Tim, you pointed out. So I think with Eumaeus, you can see the prophets, right? The The, the prophets who believed, who never left their faith behind um, and then experienced the fulfillment of the prophecy and the return of the king. And I think with Argos, and this is something Matt told me, and I just love this, and I've never seen Odyssey the same again since he said this to me two years ago. Um, he said, "Isn't doesn't Argos the dog remind you somewhat of Simeon in the temple? Hmm. Like that he's, was, were you going to say that? Well, yes. I wasn't. I was gonna. I was gonna hearken. What was the name um, to a similar kind of comparison? I, yeah, the dog to Simeon. In uh, I think Simeon shows up in the Gospel of Matthew. I can't recall exactly, but yeah, this like faithful servant who has been who's been waiting. What is it like? The the New Testament has this beautiful kind of phrase: waiting for the fulfillment of the kingdom, and finally he gets right. to see the promised son. What's the name of the, um, there's a woman, Anna, Anna. And Anna reminds me of a, a character. You're that, a Clia. Um, You're is that a Clia, his, right? That's the name of, um, Odysseus. Penelope's maid servant. Yeah. yeah, yeah the yeah, nurse. Right. Right. Yes, yeah, your exactly. client is just, I think very much like Anna. Well, and we sing in Vespers, I was just at Vespers last night and we sing now that we have come to the setting of the sun and then you sing the prayer of Simeon, mm. right? My eye, now that my eyes have seen the Lord, now may your servant depart in peace. And that is the dog. That's Argos. He's waiting on the trash heap for Odysseus to come home and then he lays eyes on him and then he dies. It's so beautiful and so human and very, there's this emotional weight to every single moment after Odysseus gets home and is preparing to defeat the suitors and restore his kingdom. But he has to wait and he has to continue to suffer and continue to endure. But he still has these connections with his son who also has to endure and suffer at his side. Uh, and as Eumaeus does, as you're a quietist. So it's, I, I, I think that for those people who are kind of feeling like they're wading through, there's a lot of intention in the slow pace of this section. And it's where I think we're supposed to feel it. And I think if we let ourselves enter into it, then the restoration becomes that much more powerful. So I, I think that the last, say nine, eight, eight, nine books, nine or 10 books of the Odyssey is where the Odyssey turns into a Western. So like, um, <laughs> oh, yeah. where, you know, uh, maybe the Odyssey doesn't turn into it. it, but so a uh, Quentin Tarantino has this, the, the movie director, Quentin Tarantino, he has this thing that he likes to call certain, a certain brand of Western. He calls them hangout Westerns and like Rio Bravo is a good example of this. Um, Rio Bravo is a John Wayne movie. It's got, you know, 
uh, who's the singing guy that was in that shoot. Anyway. Um, I'm really educated here. This is where I am just like, listen and learn. So, so what I love about this is this has all the hallmarks of what came to be these great Western stories. Real Bravo is the story of in the first half of the movie, there's this outlaw who kills a guy. So John Wayne being the sheriff has to arrest the guy. This guy is the brother of a very powerful person. So this very powerful person and all of his henchmen are constantly coming into the town to free this guy. John Wayne's character has to basically keep him in jail. Up until, you know, up till about the, the first two thirds of the movie, it just kind of has that general framework. The last third of the movie leads up to the sort of, you know, big action sequence, the, the gunfight at the end, they're going to, you know, um, the, the kind of resolution of everything where you figure out who the hero is going to be and who's going to do something surprising. And they're kind of all banding together and there's three or four guys and they know that they know that the, everything's going to go down. Right. And a lot of it is them walking around town doing their rounds. Uh, it's them sitting in the, in the, um, in the uh, sheriff's office in the jail singing songs together and telling stories. And so that's why he calls it kind of a hangout movie because the, there's this big section in the middle of the movie where it's really just John Wayne and a bunch of three or four other cowboys hanging out, telling stories. And it reminds me a lot of this bit with Eumaeus here and, and, and then Telemachus. And in Rio Bravo, for example, in almost all these movies, these archetypal characters where you have your sort of hero. So in this case, it's John Wayne. And then you usually have some kind of older... You know, there's this guy in a lot of... There's this actor that was in a lot of John Wayne movies, for example. And in this movie, he plays a character named Stumpy. He's a harmonica playing, old guy with a mustache, talks funny, doesn't have as many... Doesn't have that many teeth. He's basically a swine herder, right? And then you've got a younger character who usually can sing really well. He thinks he's a hotshot gunfighter. He's really handsome. You know, he's got to prove himself. This is his chance to do that. And so, do you have... It's, in a lot of ways, it ties into these sort of archetypal characters here in the Odyssey. And in books... Uh, 13, 14, or, you know, 14, 15, 16, there's this sense that they're hanging out, telling stories. And at the end of 16, we get this bit where it says, then Telemachus began to smile and met his father's eyes and he, he did not let Eumaeus see. And then it says, when they were finished cooking, they shared the dinner equally and all had plenty. And then they took the gift of sleep. And when I read that, I always feel like it ends there because you know what's coming tomorrow. Like you can't, you don't, mm. they're not going to stay up all night. You know, it's the moment that they have, they know that the, that the, that the, what's ahead of them begins in the morning. And that's a pretty common thing in Westerns, right? Like you're up at night, you sing the songs and then the next day you're going to have to, you know, what's, what's going to happen is whatever's going to go down is going to go down and you're each going to have to play your part. And so the last, from here to the end, the, it kind of becomes like a Western story or Western stories mirror it. So if you like Westerns, I think the sort of, slow playness of it you gotta think of like high noon or something where he's you know the the clock's just ticking and ticking and ticking and it's it might seem slow but the slowness is what allows the drama to to build up such that there's real catharsis at the end when the gunfight actually happens so i think that that's what's going on that's very similar to what's going on here in the odyssey because it's going to build and it's going to build and you're going to figure out who's on the whose lives are on the line what needs to be preserved who's going to play what role and then ultimately it's going to lead to the confrontation and then hopefully some kind of resolution after the confrontation because in a western the gunfight is never the end someone mm. either either something's being set right someone becomes a new sheriff the hero rides off the gunfight is never how it ends you always have some kind of an epilogue where someone stands in a doorway with the desert out behind them, you know? Um, yeah. and, and that's, I think that's comes from, I mean, it's, it's classical storytelling, but I think it, that kind of way of thinking about it helps me anyway, 
get a sense of what's going on here in these right. books that sometimes feel slow because the slowness is is literally what creates the drama. I mean, there's stakes, but it's what creates drama. Right. Yeah, that's a yes. great comparison. I, I can see the whole conclusion of the of the Odyssey now as sort of a slow moving Western. But I just and love how it. You go, Dave. Well, I was just going to say, I love how it ends there. They go to sleep as if they know, you know, they get the gift of sleep knowing what's ahead of them. Yeah. And throughout these last seven books, this question of sleep has been such a big deal. Odysseus is constantly fighting against or giving into sleep. It's this big inner piece of inner turmoil for him. And every now and then, some guest or some host or some god gives them a chance to sleep. And here he gets to decide for himself he's going to go to sleep, he's going to rest and prepare what's going to come in the last eight books of the Odyssey. Right. Well, and I think that goes to some of our conversation last week about kind of this, this bigger story, which m- great stories attempt to tell from various angles. The idea of a, of a disordered society needing to be set right by a, a returning king or leader, um, somebody who can make it right. That's like, that's a good story because that's a universal story. That is the story of the fall of creation and its restoration by the King of Glory. And that's how we see played out in Westerns. We see played out in murder mysteries, genre fiction. We talked about this before uh, and in great literature. Oh, I was muted. (laughs) Tim, you were going to say something a second ago though. No, no, I was, no. Well, we should we should work towards wrapping this up here. It's been, you know, we're going on an hour. So um, let's offer some final thoughts here. Um, book 16, when it ends, you know, there's 24 books in the Odyssey. So it's two thirds of the way through. So if you're looking at it just in that way, you know, there's, you know, there's eight books left. Um, so as you're going into these last eight books, we, we, we've kind of talked about what to anticipate a little bit. But Heidi, what are you most excited about reading again? Or what would you tell people to to look for as they dive into these last uh, eight books and these four episodes we're going to do on those eight books? Sure. Well, I mean, along with what I said earlier in the podcast, I would also circle back to Telemachus and watch how, like pay attention to how the, the fatherless young man of the Telemachy, the first four books, how he is mentored, trained, fathered, um, and able to fulfill his destiny with the return of, of his father. And that is a really, um, I don't want to say sweet because that sounds lame, but it is though. Like There's just this beauty and this humanity and this very satisfying experience of seeing this young man who has longed for a father to be taught how to be a man as he sees his father restore their kingdom and participates in that and shares in his sufferings. Again, to go back to this idea of how the Odyssey prefigures Christ, right? We have this young man who is sharing in the sufferings of his father for the life and the the redemption of his land. Uh, so that works on the personal level um, and then on the societal and public level and then also on the universal level, the longings of our own hearts, we can see kind of uh, satisfied in this developing relationship. 
Um, Tim, do you want to respond to that or do you want to add your own final thoughts? It's a variation of what Heidi just said. Um, we've made so many comparisons to the Old and New Testament. <clears throat> I think it's really interesting in Christ's teaching, there's this repeated, um, there's this sort of enigma of why do some people recognize Christ and why do others not? And Jesus says, let him who has eyes see, let him who has ears hear. I think it's really interesting, the remainder of the Odyssey, looking at those who have eyes to see Odysseus and those who don't, <laughs> because they eventually will see him. And, and that will be the climax of the book is when they get those eyes to see him. So that's one thing I think that will be fun to, to read forward for is who are the characters that get to recognize him and why do they get, why are the, why are they the ones that have the eyes to see? Hmm. Hmm. Well, what about you, David? Do you have any final thoughts? Oh, I'm just waiting for the gunfight. <laughs> I think right? I'm going to be so disappointed when there's wrong. not guns in the end. <laughs> it just turns into a, Spear fight. Um, I guess it's not a spear <laughs> fight either. Well, there's multiple weapons. Um, I wanted to let people know, remind people that if you are um, a Patreon supporter, we just today posted the next bonus episode. We uh, Tim and Heidi and I talked about Willa Cather's story, Paul's case, a study in temperament, which is a super surreal, weird, on the verge of being depressing story, but we had a great time talking about it. So if you are a Patreon supporter, you can head over to patreon.com slash close reads and you can listen to that. If you're not a Patreon supporter, but you want to listen to our bonus podcast, then you can also go to that same link, patreon.com slash close reads and find out how you can support the show and also get close reads swag and bonus podcasts and all that kind of stuff. Also, don't forget about uh, the ways that you can connect with us. You can find us on Instagram and on Twitter at Close Reads Pods. You can join the Close Reads Podcast discussion group on Facebook. Just search that in the Facebook menu bar and click the join button and we'll we'll add you. And you can sign up for our newsletter at closereads.substack.com. Try to send those out at least every other couple, at least every other week, um, sometimes more often than that. Um, try to keep news and reflections and uh, information on the books that we're doing and things like that. Uh, keep those kind of things going out to you. And then you can also uh, head over to the website that's closereadspodcasts.com. And you can email us at closereadspodcast at gmail.com. So there's lots of ways. There's almost like too many ways to get in touch with us, but that's the world we live in now. So <laughs> Heidi, Tim, thanks for joining me. Hey. Thanks, David. Thank you, David. We will be back next week to discuss books 17 and 18 as we uh, move rapidly towards the end of the book. It's gone pretty quickly. So I guess that means we're having a good time. But uh, join us next week for books 17 and 18. We will be uh, rearing and ready to go. So for Heidi White, for Tim McIntosh, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you next week and happy reading. <laughs>